Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian? We are on part two of a listener's choice, and Bobby, this is all about your questions. So we've got folks that have um, written in on LinkedIn. Mostly it's LinkedIn these days, which is great. I need to re-add that app to my phone. It kind of became a bit of a distraction. But uh, we've had some good questions accumulate uh, over the past couple months, and we have turned this into um, a few-part series to where we'll um, handle questions. We're going to try to hit three or four at a time in these series. Uh, so there's not really any particular order to this. If you can listen to this series in, in any order or this listener's choice in any order. And uh, please do continue to send in your questions. We, uh, we love to take those and then feed them into the podcast and get some feedback. It's been fun, Bobby, kind of thinking about these as they come in um, and formulating the podcast. It's been a good show. No doubt. And I enjoyed the conversation last week and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy this one. It's been fun to, uh, I guess relive kind of the early days of my sales career uh, through some of these questions and, and reflect on just how much experience I have now. And hopefully I'm able to pay some of my experience forward to those of you that are listening to the show. Indeed. All right. First question. Uh, this is uh, a person that is preparing to make the change from a B2C sales to be in to, to from, from B2C to B2B. Basically he's selling a consumer uh, products to uh, basically just not non-companies effectively and it's going to start selling to businesses at this point um, and it's going to be a big change uh, for him I, I know he'll be successful in it um, I know he'll enjoy it he's going to be working with folks that um, have much bigger budgets um, it's going to be a much more strategic conversation um, now let's focus on some of the challenges well, real quick, Here. you know, sure. I get on the tech sales lab side of the house, I get asked this question a lot when I'm meeting new students and people are interested in, in starting a career in tech sales. You know, is tech sales like working at Best Buy? Is tech sales working at the Apple store? You know, am I going to be competing with people on eBay? I mean, some crazy questions because even some people listening might not understand what B2C is, what B2B is. And Really, mm -hmm. where's the divide and, and what are we selling? So we've talked about a lot of this. Hopefully, you've gone back and listened to some of those shows. But, I mean, B2, B2C is really kind of maybe a Best Buy type person, someone sure. who works at a Fry's or your local retail store that's selling big tech, you know, desktop computers and sound systems, et cetera. B2B is more when corporate America, commercial businesses, people that have budgets and, and, and plans to upgrade their technology solutions to better enable their business is kind of who we're talking about these people will be selling to. So it's a far divide, but the stuff is really the same, just on smaller scale compared to a bigger scale. Indeed. Yeah. So yeah, great, uh, great summary on that. So, and I think one of the biggest, um, consumer, actions when they're buying something. A lot of times it's an emotional buy or it's a convenience buy or even an impulsive buy. And that's not going to be the case on a B2B sell in most cases. Like on occasion, you're going to get a, you know, a business end user that's 
buying software or hardware for their business that they are, you know, emotionally tied to. They, they feel they feel like they're gonna it's gonna make their job easier or better. If it has any sort of price tag to it, the the, the biggest change you're gonna find in your day to day job is that the solution has to provide business value back to their to the end customer. So uh, whether that is a better price, a better delivery mechanism. Uh, a more efficient, um, you know, execution in terms of software. It, there's going to have to be something that's provided back to the business for them to make it. It's it's oftentimes going to be a, a, a longer sell cycle, whereas in B two C you're used to making their, you know, consumers are making decisions on a, you know, a minute basis, an hour basis, a couple day basis. Some of these sales take you know upwards of a month, and it takes a long time to get in to see these customers. But it's more strategic, and I think you'll find it to be more challenging and more intellectually stimulating, uh, you know, versus a high volume sell like working with consumers. No doubt. And I'll just throw one example. My daughter called from college and said, "Dad, I'd like an external monitor for my laptop." That was very consumerish, right? I went online, I picked the size she wanted, I ordered that, I had it drop shipped her room, and then she said, "I don't have cables," so I added those cables, and I then. She said, I need a keyboard and mouse. Or I asked her, how are you going to type? And she said, well, I don't know. I didn't think about that. It was very consumerish, right? I just I just clicked and bought. But if I was going to do that on the scale, even for my flight school or for my entire team at like a Dell EMC or something like that, I have to figure out security and a lot of other things, right? It's not just a quick, I'm just going to spend this money and buy it and have it shipped. It's a lot more to it than that. So. And most of our listeners probably know that, but we, for those that might not, we wanted to throw that out. Yeah, and, and some of these questions aren't going to be applicable to everyone. So, of course, you can fast forward on to the next question if this is something that's right up your alley. Um, another challenge with this is, is, and part of your job is to determine the buying path. You know, obviously with a consumer, it's a very direct path to, you know, getting them to spend their money. Um, but in oftentimes in corporate America, you know, while a director or a manager or an individual contributor may want a piece of hardware, a piece of software, there are approval paths, there are budgetary restrictions. You have your job to understand what those restrictions are and to understand the path to signature, the path to execution on whatever your wear is. Yeah, one thing I'll throw out there is is it's not, you know, for me, um, in my world now, I might be a little bit emotional, a little bit tied to Apple, uh, and and I might say, well, I'm going to buy the Apple keyboard. Well, I did the same thing for my daughter in a consumer world, but I looked at the price tags, and she got the $29 bundle for both keyboard and mouse that looked a little Apple-ish, but aren't Apple-ish. And that's because I know she's going to use it for a couple of years and probably get thrown away, right? That, that won't last forever. But in the business world, I might make a different decision, right? I'm looking for longevity. I'm looking for supportability. Uh, a company that that's selling me a $29 keyboard, my expectations are extremely low, right? I'm willing to rebuy that two or three times for my daughter versus the, the one that I want to last for five years, which you would think about in the consumer world. So as a B2B seller, some of the things you'll be learning – aren't just coupons, lowest prices, and rebates. It's going to be more about what are you trying to accomplish. And and those conversations are very different because the consumer is probably looking for a good deal and a business is looking for a good, a good change that's going to make them more successful doing the business that they do. I, I think the final point here is this is where mentors really will start to impact your career long term. So Understand in your organization who the top folks are. Uh, one of our 
former bosses had a great saying of hitters, no hitters. It wasn't, he didn't create that saying. It's gone around for a long time, but it's very true. Understand who the hitters are in an organization, uh, build a relationship with them, find something that you can add value back to their business, and then very clearly understand what makes them successful. Like what do they do? How do they manage the sell cycle? How do they prospect? How do they overcome objections? And uh, try to form some relationships there because if you can learn from the best here and um, be hyper-focused on that sell cycle and being strict around it and being strict around your prospecting, you can be successful in this as well. Love it. Let's go to question number two. Um, how to handle the pressure when you are a high achiever? Uh, I think we've both maybe experienced some of this, Brian, and I think we get well, – I do get a lot of questions similar to this or – uh, on the circumference of this, I'll say, you know, where people are wanting to know uh, my quote is going up, you know, the, all the, the negativity that comes maybe with being a high achiever. Um, but I think we both experienced this and I think, I think we live for the, the pressure. I think we live for success and, and the continuation of achieving high results. But the, this particular user was wondering how do they, how do they deal with the pressure? And I'm going to say probably more on a monthly quarterly basis. Yeah. What are your thoughts? We talk, we've had a number of one-off or series about uh, not letting the we tiger have. into the cave. This is something that we've talked about quite a bit. Yeah, and it's funny because just this week I was at our QBR and um, was talking to one of the top performers, and he was nervous about the upcoming uh, fiscal year. And uh, it was quickly noted that um, his anxiety in the upcoming year is what leads him to be successful year after year after year. So part of it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy that the stress creates action, which then creates continued success, which then creates, you know, it's like this self-fulfilling prophecy that's a challenge. And um, so part of that is is good, is healthy sales stress that you can't ignore. But some of it can become too overwhelming. And we did a whole uh, listener's choice on the tiger in the cave. In fact, I think we named it that. And it is about how do you not allow the stress to cripple you? Because I've I've certainly over the years had um, months, weeks, uh, maybe upwards of a year to where I've had a, a heavy amount of pressure that I didn't know how to deal with in a very healthy fashion. I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning, stressed about the sixty-two things I've got to accomplish this week and um, the twelve things that could go wrong. Um, so I would say go back and listen to that episode because we we covered it in a pretty detailed level. This does not take away from going to see a, uh, psychiatrist and, and, and kind of getting some good health, uh, assessment here. Uh, but I would say that there, this profession is, uh, well compensated. And because of that, you're doing a very difficult job. And part of that cell stress is just natural and helps you continue to achieve again and again. Um, I, I would say the, what you really have to focus on, to, to boil it down to the very core is two things. One, do you intellectually understand the most effective path on running a deal? And like uh, what deals you need to qualify in on, what deals you need to qualify out on, where are you investing your time? And I know I'm oversimplifying that, but you've got to get really, really good at that if you're, um, if you're, if you're trying to minimize the amount of stress. And then the second thing you got to do is focus on the pipe and getting deals into the funnel. And if you can if you can build that top of the funnel up, 
and you have a rock solid execution plan and you know how to run a deal, you know how to qualify outs. If the volume is there, you're going to make smarter decisions about how you qualify in and qualify out. And I found that's the most effective way for me personally to handle pressure when it comes to achieving year after year after year is to fill that top of the funnel. And then I make much more strategic decisions about where I invest my time. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have anxiety because you want to be better. And and I, I've said this many times on the show, you know, the average people aren't worried about making their number. They're not worried about these things. They don't have the level of anxiety that hitters have, right? So if you have anxiety or you're a little anxious about making your number or how much your quota is going up, kudos to you because you're probably you're probably a high achiever and you're somebody that I want to work around or be around uh, working with. That being said, I would say, and I think I said it on that episode about the letting the tiger in the cave, I wake up many times, can't fall back to sleep. Many times I go to bed, I can't go to sleep. And normally the next morning by 10 a.m., things are settled down and I'm calmer and, and the world doesn't come to an end, right? Um, but it is our strive for success and it's our strive for perfection. And it's the fact that we hold ourselves accountable. So appreciate those things and then try to find a way to take a deep breath and not let them take you down for the weekend or, or take you away from family because those things are only here for a short period of time as well. They're really, really important. Uh, appreciate the fact that you are a high achiever and that you do have the anxiety because it's a lot better than the average people that don't. A couple of things we talked about in that episode, just a very, very brief recap, is uh, first, what, what the golden nugget, nugget for me was to chase the fear all the way through every time. Bobby, it rang so true when you said that what was worrying me at 3 a.m. never worried me at 9 a.m. It was never as bad at 9 a.m. than it was early, early in the morning. But at three in the morning, what I did is I would chase that fear all the way through. Okay, so if I miss my number, what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm on plan? Does that mean they're going to fire me? It's never as extreme as it as it feels maybe at 3 a.m., but I would chase that fear all the way through. Well, does this cause me to lose my family? Well, certainly not. It doesn't. So what, what are we really talking about here? And I chased it all the way down. I chased that fear all the way down. And it got to the point to where I, I didn't have that impulsive it, it took me, this is not something that happened overnight, but I, it got to the point where I didn't have that impulse of, of deep anxiety because I, I would defuse it every single time. And then the second big thing for me was to, to really take care of yourself. Um, I talk about my Thursday rule all the time, and now people tell me they use it too, which is great to hear. And my Thursday rule is if I've had a really stressful, busy week, I block off the uh, STM on my calendar on Thursday morning. That stands for Stop the Madness. And I book my calendar up until 10 a.m. and I sleep in and I, I get up and I work out and then I'm ready to go at 10 a.m. And what are we really talking about here? Like we're talking about a, I don't know, most people get started at work at around 9 a.m., right? And but It's a blip in the bigger scheme of things. It's a blip. It really is. And, and what it allows me to do is like take a deep breath. And my calendar is blocked and my phone is on do not disturb. And... Fridays are always kind of nice in the tech world, I think, for the most part. Occasionally, you have an RFP due or something, but it to have kind of an extra little deep breath on a Thursday, um, I always found to be helpful. And then fitness is a big part of your take care of yourself as well. When I got maybe maybe OCD or extreme is where it's turned into at this point, but uh, when I started to take better care of myself with food and exercise, um, I, I found that the fears really subsided. Awesome. All right, so. 
This is one that I have a lot of discussions about uh, with people, and it's something that I think I've had a little bit of a knack for, but how do you manage your manager? And I don't know that it's so much about managing your manager. That's probably what the external people see it as, but it's more about how do you control some conversations with your manager? How do you how do you get your manager to act or work with you in a way that's going to benefit you? And then if you are a high achiever, not average, you probably want some more candid feedback and your manager probably doesn't know how to do that or give that to you. So how do we work through those things? Brian, this is something that you and I as both managers and friends have worked through together and been able to balance that. We've, we've given a few examples on the show, but for the first one, uh, I know you've said it before, but how would you ask a manager to give you feedback, uh, assuming you joined a new team? Um, yeah, I mean, this is my favorite one. This is one my dad gave me is I, I very confidently, boldly in, uh, say I, 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 my goal and expectation is to be, to be the number one guy on your team, period. And I want you to manage me that way. And that gives them the, the, okay to give me the difficult feedback and i even i have my interviewer uh review um we we kind of do check-ins is what we do so i had my check-in with my boss in january my feedback to him was i want i want more feedback i know you're protecting me from some of the things from your boss i want to know what what that what what are you protecting me from i want to be more exposed to those types of things because it will just create more of a transparent relationship between the two of us and it was good. It was like it, it opened up the door to me because I, by taking things off his plate, it allows us to have a more fluid relationship. And that's what I need because whenever I need him to approve something to help me eliminate some sort of roadblock, if, if I am delivering for him um, across all aspects, all aspects of the business, um, I have a better chance of being more successful in my business. And there's not a single average rep out there going to their manager saying, uh, please manage me as if I'm in the bottom 10%. I would like to know that I'm not performing and that I don't do what you want me to do, right? I mean, it, it might sound super obvious, but it's true. Like, they're the complainers, the whiners, the the, the people that managers are struggling with, right? So um, if, they're, if they're the ones asking the question, how do I manage my manager, it's probably more about how do I get away with the – the average work that I'm doing today. But if you're a high achiever and you're trying to figure out how to manage your manager, the tip that I give everybody is own your one-on-one. I mean, that's the, mm-hmm. the easiest, but also maybe the hardest thing for people to do is to, to go into the one-on-one with confidence and with an agenda that's going to help you do your job better or become better at what you're trying to accomplish, whether that's a career change, a promotion or whatever. Um, I think too many managers, they want to have the one-on-ones because they know they're supposed to have the one-on-ones, but they're late to them. They cut them short. They're not, they're not what they need to be. They're a forecast review when they shouldn't be a forecast review. Um, and so I try to send my deal recap before, long before my meeting. And when I sit down, I say, look, it's in your inbox. You want to know about my deals? We talk about them all the time. The new updates, they're there. CRM's up to date. Let's don't waste this 45 minutes to an hour on that. Let's talk about what I'm doing. Here's where I'm struggling with customer ABC. Here's the roadblock that I've hit with an internal employee. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish with my mentor, and it just doesn't seem to be making progress. We agreed that we were going to help me be a manager in two years, and I don't think you're doing those things to help me be a manager. I mean, it's it's not – it doesn't have to be combative, right, Brian? I mean, this, mm-hmm. these are 
These are conversations between two professional adults that that should be for each other's good. Um, and I, I see way too many people drowning in the minutia of the work of a sales rep when they're working with their manager instead of the management of the employee, which is what the manager's hired to do. And I'll say this one thing Microsoft did really, really good. When you became a manager, your job was to manage people. Um, I've seen other sales organizations where the manager's job is to help close deals, right? And I don't, I never felt that way at Microsoft. I really felt like I was freed up to manage and grow my people. Mm, yeah, that's really good feedback. And I think what happens a lot of times to, maybe this is where the source of the question is coming from, is part of the sales manager's job, for better or for worse, and certainly in a frontline sales role, is to manage systems because the, the all-important forecast typically falls on the sales manager's shoulder. And so you have to recognize that it, it is what it is. This is the job we signed up for. And both as a manager and an individual contributor that has a forecast that's managing deals. So it doesn't mean you need to live in your CRM tool. It doesn't mean that you need to be bogged down in administrivia. But it does mean that if you want to have a more strategic discussion with your manager, I promise you, and Bobby, you alluded to this, if you are taking care of the blocking and tackling stuff, you can eliminate a lot of that stuff in your one-on-one. You're not talking about, well, okay, is that the right stage? Are we in the right month for that deal? You could come in and say, Salesforce is clean. My deals are forecasted properly. You know what I mean? You can, like, you can check those boxes off quick, but so oftentimes none of us, and I, I include myself in this, as, as account executives, like the last thing you want to do is, is spend time in that CRM tool. But I can tell you as a, as a sales director, if, if that stuff is knocked out, man, we can get on to much more important conversations if that stuff's knocked out. That and training, if those two things are done, we yes. could probably save 30 minutes of every hour one-on-one, um, which is, is quite comical. All right, so we'll jump from how to manage the manager. And, and if you want us to talk more about that one, let us know. Uh, send an email to info at techsellshow.com. But, I mean, it's not about necessarily managing. It's more about controlling the conversation. Mm-hmm. And from the other side of the table – which is kind of timely for this conversation is from, it came from a sales manager that we both know. And it's, can you give me some tips and tricks on how I can motivate my team? Right. Um, we've all been through a merger. We've all been through a downtime. We spent a lot of time recently on some shows talking about beating the competition or, or how do I, how do I break down and take out the incumbent? Right. I mean, we've all been there where we felt like there's no hope, no hope whatsoever. Right. Uh, as a rep. And then as a manager, I think as the individual contributors, we don't understand that it's really hard for them also to keep us happy and and motivated to achieve a bigger goal, right? So what's the first thing you would do, Brian? Uh, You've led a lot of teams. How how do you think about or what do you do to to, to start motivating your teams? Well, this is timely too, because I've got my, or my team will have their QBR coming up here and I'll lead off our QBR with why I'm at workday. And it, it's, it's because it it really does matter. Um, At at this point in my career, you could, you you know, me or anybody on my team could be at any company. I, and I know this is not unique to me, so I'm not trying to suggest this in any sort of uh, bragging way, but I, we had, I had three LinkedIn messages this week to interview for a, another sales director at other companies, three other companies. But I, and I choose, and I really enjoy working at Workday. Why, why are you at your company? 
what what motivates you to stay there? I've got a very clear story about what where Workday's at today and where we're going to be in five years. And I believe that story. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be at Workday because there are other options out there. Like this is unemployment's at an all-time low. This is the land of milk and honey, right? You know, this in, in tech sales. So um, I know why I want to be here. And it's very clear to me. I share that message with my team and I would encourage the team. You, I would encourage you to ask your team, what is it about the company you're at? Why are you here? What's important to you? Like what goals is this helping you achieve? I love it. And I think as a young manager, I thought I, I thought everyone was motivated just like me, whether I was coin driven or whatever it was. And it took a lot of rough bumps along the road, hopefully twenty years ago, to to show that I, I, I not everyone was motivated like me. And I think I got really good in the last decade at figuring out what motivated people, whether it was a more relaxed schedule. Uh, and when those people needed a more relaxed schedule, it was easy to uh, provide that more relaxed schedule. When someone wanted to make money and they were really going to work for it, it was easy to take an account from one rep and give it to them and let them go drain the swamp from that customer and, and go make a lot of money. It's not the same thing for everybody, and I think it takes managers a lot of time to figure that out. So if you're a new manager and you have the same question, the best advice I can give you is just ask your team and make your team feel safe answering this question. You know, mm-hmm. there was a time where I interviewed for a sales job, and I told them I base I, I teach my son's baseball team, I coach my son's baseball team, and if that's going to be a problem here, I don't want to work here. And it was a time in my life where those early days cutting out at three o'clock to make those those baseball practices was critical. And of course, they they made that happen, but that my manager could say, "Look, I'm letting you go, coach. Now here's what I need, and what would I do? I'd break my back for that manager." to help him accomplish those goals. Yeah. Love that one. Um, another thing for me is um, I want buy-in from the team that they have a territory they can be successful in. And if they don't, how do we fix it? Because I, you know, it's your territory is your business in a lot of ways. And I want everyone on the team to feel good about their business uh, because that it can't be, that can't be an excuse for me and it can't be an excuse for them. So it's not a trick question. It's it's a real question. Do we have a territory we can be successful in? If not, how do we resolve it? Sometimes it's not an easy res- resolution, but we have to work to fix it. And the only thing I, I would caution new managers there is the, the whiner doesn't win that conversation, right? Oh, like, no. It, it is really easy for you to say, okay, you've got to – I think your territory is one that you can be successful in. Why don't you? And they can give you a million reasons why not. And you say – okay, here, if you do these things, I think you'll be successful. And then you kind of have to put them on a plan, but it's like a, an agreed upon plan. Like if you do these actions, I think you'll be more successful. You bring me the, the, to these meetings and I can maybe give you some examples of what success looks like. But don't believe the, the whiner, the average rep who says, there's no way I can make my number. Um, there's too much of that going on. So if you're a new manager, try to find things that you can do to create a scorecard of success, and if they don't accomplish that and they still complain, then they're probably not the right rep for your team. Totally agree. If they are, if this is a low performer on your team, this is the wrong question to ask. This, this, this question absolutely makes the assumption that you're working with high, you got a high performance team. Um, and the answer will be yes, and I need this, yes, but I could use this. 
but it leads to a real conversation if you're dealing with a high-performing team. You're right. If you got a complainer on the team, that's a bad question. <laughs> that could be a very bad question. Yeah, no doubt. Um, another one for me is uh, focusing on creating uh, liquidity. So I, what I look at is like it's the AE's job to create liquidity with a customer to help them buy. It's my job to help the rep get what he or she needs within the organization to move a deal along or to provide feedback on why we can't go this way or that way. But if you can, if you can think about your job as is creating liquidity from a customer request to get a project done to delivered, if you can focus on that part of it, you're going to have happy account executives. That's going to inspire your team because they see you as an asset to helping them close business and make money. Yeah, and it's not just giving them everything they ask for, but it, it no. is the it is the when there is an ask, if it's reasonable, make sure it happens right. Whether that's a discount, whether that's a few extra seats, whether that's another month of support, every business is different. Um, find a way to help them get some barriers knocked down so that they can be successful. They will be highly motivated. And I've got one last one here, Bobby. Unless you have others, and that is um, represent your team well. I, I had, as I mentioned, I had my QBR recently to where I present my business back to my vice president. And in the day-to-day busyness of life and deals and everything else, I could allow that presentation to take a back seat. That's the wrong thing to do. So what I do is I, I represent my team really well in front of our vice president, in front of our extended team, because I'm proud of my team and I work hard. You know, the team works hard to achieve its goals. So that's that's a big part of uh, how we run things. And and if a manager asks me what motivates you, of course I would say making money motivates me and accomplishing my goals inside the company and for my family. But I I do like to be called out. I do like to be a leader. I, if I'm an individual contributor, I like the attaboys and the the pats on the back. So if Brian's my manager and he represents me well, and the VP then calls me and says, "Hey, Brian had a lot of good things to say." that's going to motivate me. So it doesn't always have to be physical things that a sales manager does to motivate their team, meaning time off, more pay, more flexibility. It really could be as simple as pumping a guy or girl up that that is accomplishing and doing the things that they said they would do because not everybody's doing that. So ask for the softer things, ask for the more physical things, try and accomplish the ones you can, and I think you'll find that you'll really motivate your team. Anything it. else as we wrap up these four questions for today, Brian? No, thanks for the questions, everyone. Uh, please do continue to send them in, and we'll cover more next week. As always, average is the enemy. Average sucks. Don't be average, people. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week, average is the enemy.